The FT. The FT Arts Podcast is brought to you by Vacheron Constantin. Hello, I'm Ravi Mathieu, the FT's technology editor. And in this episode of the FT Arts Podcast, we'll be looking at none other than podcasts themselves. Podcasts have been around for about a decade, but the last year has seen a surge of interest. The most talked and written about program has been the true crime drama, Serial a spin-off of the U.S. public radio show This American Life, which has been downloaded more than 40 million times. So what's caused this so-called podcast renaissance? What, if anything, makes them different from radio shows? And do they pose a threat to traditional broadcasting? Uh, I'll be putting these questions to my studio guests here in London, Helen Zaltzman, who presents the popular podcasts Answer Me This and The Illusionist. Hi, Hello. Helen. Hello, Rav. Um, the writer and academic Sarah Churchwell. Hi, Sarah. Hi. And Mark Friend, the man responsible for online radio services at the BBC. Mark, Hi, Ravi. So, Helen, let me start with you because you, in a way, are an early pioneer of the podcast. Um, in the <laughs> sense my that my bonnet and my wagon, <laughs> exactly. Um, in the sense, though, that you kind of this technology emerges and you decide to more or less have a go, and you created a, um, a brand, an identity, a kind of career out of doing this, and achieved a lot of success. Your podcasts are very popular. Can you give us a sense, why do you think, as somebody who produces them, they're just so popular right now? Well, one of the reasons um, I enjoy them as a listener is uh, partly being your own commissioner and think, well, I have this interest, and this interest is not necessarily reflected by mainstream broadcasters, but there are other people in the world who share it and are making shows about it. You can hear voices that you don't hear on, on the mainstream and subjects tackled in a different way. So I enjoy that. And just the fact that on-demand content is increasingly um, appealing to people. Well, it's increasingly available and therefore people are like, wow, why do I listen to anything off-demand? Because uh, it's convenient. It makes us into kind of selfish babies, doesn't it? But um, <laughs> on the other hand, it really works. Um, and just judging by what our listeners tell us, I think they feel like they have a very close relationship with us because they've sought out the podcast and they've chosen to listen to it and um, they feel very intimately connected to us. I mean, and, and that's an interesting point, because in the grand scheme of things, it, it's still a reasonably small population that are using the podcast. I think in the US, it's around 17%. But mm. what seems to happen, and maybe Mark, you can come in on this, is the engagement factor is really strong. People come back over and over again to, as Helen says, they feel this engagement with the presenter, with the community around that particular program. I mean, at the BBC, of course, you have certain programs which are immensely popular, Desiree Discs, um, In Our Time, which have huge audiences uh, through the podcast world. Give us a sense of how you make that kind of community engagement bit work and how you build on that. I think a lot of it is down to, in our case, a very traditional kind of relationship with some much-loved programs and also um, some of the stations. Uh, and then the BBC. I mean, we've just seen consistent growth since we launched in 2007. I kind of trying it out in 2005, and it's um, it's just every year it grows another kind of 25 percent. You know, we've got like 70 million downloads a month uh, for our stuff, and some of it is real loyalty to known things like the programs you mentioned. Some of it is kind of new stuff that we try out, and we suddenly find it's really popular. You know, the, the history of the world and 100 objects is, what, at least three years old now. I can't remember, maybe four years old. And we're still getting, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of downloads a month. Now, the other thing which you've obviously done very well at the BBC is is create something called the iPlayer, um, which is an incredibly powerful technology, which allows people to do, as, as Helen mentioned, this on-demand thing whenever they want, mm. whatever they want, delving into the archive stuff, as you mentioned. Mm. Where does... Because you talked a bit about the loyalty to programs that have existed on mainstream traditional radio. 
where does the technology fit in terms of the on-demand side of things? Um, are you seeing experiments being done that uh, aren't, don't play on, say, Radio 4, but might play on the iPlayer alone and get a, an audience and a resonance that, that didn't exist, without that exists without the kind of mainstream radio? Yeah, I mean, I think the technology really matters for making it more convenient, like Helen said. I mean, the fact that you can subscribe to something and it just turns up every week is fantastic. The technology knows the things I like and it's going to keep throwing that at me. And I think what you see is with podcasting, it kind of lowers all the barriers to entry. here. You know, more people can join in. New kinds of voices come in. Uh, you get a different kind of uh, presentation of stuff. So that ability to play around on demand, not be held by a schedule, not have to fit into a 15 minute, 30 minute, one hour format makes a huge difference. And that kind of rise in on demand was seen massively in television. So in TV, you know, the last figures I saw, 11% of TV consumption in this country is on demand. Most of that is PVRs and skyboxes and cable boxes. You know, it's actually the technology really matters. And on radio, you don't have that. So podcasting makes a big difference here because that is probably the one really good way. Um, it has been for the last 10 years, the one really good way of trying to deliver a good on-demand experience. Do you have shows that are popular on podcast and not particularly popular uh, when they're broadcast on the radio, but they uh, are kept on there in order that they can have this podcast that does well? Uh, I think it's interesting to say something like Komodo Mayo. I mean, that's one of our most popular podcasts. This is the like, film review programme, right? The film review programme. So the fact that you've got two people, they, people come to listen, I think, for the relationship between those two, which is fantastic, um, you know, as much as they do for the film reviews, right? So what you've got is something that's much more like podcasting i think which is is you know you hear a story you're willing to go along with it you're going to hear two people chatting along and arguing and taking the mick out of each other we know we're reaching a different kind of audience that's the main thing for us sarah you of course have studied the history of radio programs through research you've done around f scott fitzgerald can you give us a sense of where this new podcast bit fits in that longer-term history of radio. It's it's really interesting because Mark just mentioned um, television and the parallels with it. And what you actually see with radio, radio first emerged in the early 1920s. You know, the BBC itself is founded in 1922. That's exactly when radio starts to explode into both American and British homes. They don't have content yet, really. Um, and it takes them basically most of the 20s to work out what content is going to be. One of the first things that Americans started broadcasting was actually university lectures. and But only in small, you know, to small local audiences and and they start to get the technology and as you say all of this is dependent on technology it's also dependent on money of course so where's the advertising coming from and advertising starts to shape the structures um, and that's when you get for instance the soap opera is called a soap opera because it's soap advertisers are paying for it and that seriality starts to emerge in a kind of conversation with the advertising and and the structure is formed partly by the advertising. The seriality aspect of, of radio in America really emerges in 1930s at the same time as film is sound film is coming into its own. And, and people forget that, I think, sometimes, that sound doesn't come to film until the late 1920s. And then radio is starting to, to create these serials. So, so sound is all becoming important around the same time, around the 30s. And then, of course, you get television. 
And I think what happened for a long time was that it felt like radio was kind of frozen in time and it was competing with television and film and maybe not very successfully. And it was kind of overcompensating in radio drama by trying to add visuals through sound effects. And you'd get those, you know, hoof taps, pitter patter, or the raindrops on the roof. And, and that starts to feel incredibly stale. And I think that what's happening now is that everything is, all of these structures are opening up. And what that means is that the timing of the programs, um, becomes more flexible in the same way that it is with television. They're not bound by those 50 minute or 30 minute formats that were driven by advertising. Um, so now there's, you can, you can create content that has the right timing and the right structure for the content. It can be more conversational. Um, in the ways that we're saying, you can have more of a relationship. So you feel like you're listening to somebody and having a conversation with them rather than to some kind of prefabricated flat drama that's 30 minutes and you must give it 30 minutes. And of course, part of the, the thing about listening through a set of headphones on your iPhone or your your Android phone or your watch now is that the intimacy level of that interaction is, is quite different than listening to, to say, a, a traditional radio. I mean, Helen, obviously, you have a very close relationship. You alluded it to it earlier with your listeners. Does that feed into the relationship bit that the nature of how they're listening affects that community and relationship bit with you and, and your, your co-presenters? I think so, because also um, when you're listening on a mobile device, you can be moving around, you can be doing something that creates that kind of sense memory. You know, you can often remember what you were what you were listening to when you're in a particular place because those things are linked together. And um, sometimes we'll get, we'll get people being very candid with us to answer me this. It is a show that invites interaction because it's all based around listener questions. But sometimes they send us these huge tracts about their lives uh, some of which be very serious. We had someone who um, has pretty much been in a darkened room for 10 years because she has very severe ME and she was saying podcasts, one of the few things that I can actually uh, enjoy because I can't watch TV because of the light. And um, we also had someone who said um, she was having sex with her boyfriend and then uh, she was wondering why he was laughing. And <laughs> it's because he was listening to our podcast oh. on, a, on a pillow speaker, <laughs> which I didn't even know was a thing. Um, so... Uh, <laughs> So there's that, I guess. That's, That's a bit too over, intimate. over intimate, isn't <laughs> I, I would it? say. I mean, buy me dinner first. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, now I'm doing a newish show called The Allusionist, which is just me, so I don't have a co-host. And I'm used to broadcasting in conversation. And with this, I had to figure out how can I still make it sound conversational, even though it's just me there? How can I make the listener feel like they are part of a dialogue rather than just listening to me monologuing at them because when you're speaking to someone's head you don't just want to be hectoring them I don't think and also in radio I think you can be louder like radio jingles can be more aggressive because you might be listening from across the room but on podcasts I find the same jingles just way too harsh yeah it's interesting because also there's an interesting thing and and Sarah you you talked about it a bit about this the advertising nature of how this changed and one of the curious trends now with podcasts was companies like Gimlet in the States this idea of native advertising in podcasts where the presenters will go and read a sponsor's message it kind of harkens back to TV in the, in the 60s it, and 50s. Exactly, which is fascinating. And that's what I mean is that it, this is all this all becomes kind of fluid. And you have this sense that radio and television and film are in this kind of conversation with each other and, and they're moving around and reinventing each other. And so exactly, I mean, in the in the 50s, you can still see some of the stuff on YouTube. It's fantastic. There are these, you know, really serious newscasters who will be, uh, you know, doing this important show. And then and then they'll say, and now um, for for a break from our from our sponsor, Lucky Strike Cigarettes, I always smoke Lucky 
these strikes because I think they're the best cigarettes. And and now that feels incredible that you would get uh, the presenter actually speaking as a celebrity endorser at the same time of something that we now you're not even allowed to advertise for. So the whole thing becomes, I think it is very possible that, you know, in a century when people are looking back at, at these, at this early generation of podcasts, there will be a similar sense of um, something that has shifted in attitudes and values about whether this is appropriate or not appropriate. But also, I think a, a really important part of this that relates both to advertising and to podcasts more generally is not just intimacy, but informality, that we live in a much more informal world. And that that's what makes us comfortable. And the formality of old radio structures, I think people still feel is a kind of closed box that they don't necessarily find their way into. I think we're also more open society, I hope. Uh, I think we tend to be a little bit more honest now than once we were, less disingenuous about how all of this works and not pretending that advertising isn't part of it. So to say, look, we got to get the money somewhere. You guys either have to donate the money or we're going to have to do a kickstart or, you know, or here I am going to tell you that here's one of the things that's sponsoring our program. And for me, there's something refreshing in that candor that we're not, you know, putting up these kinds of pretenses and fraudulences. That's one of the things I like about podcasting is there's a sense that it kind of, um, you know, does what it says on the tin to use an advertising <laughs> metaphor. Yeah, <laughs> I think your conversational thing is really interesting there, because I think a lot of traditional radio, you often feel like there's an expert mm. who's going to teach you something. And that's often the, the kind of that's often how it's presented to like you. Like the old OU TV model, the yeah. guy standing at the blackboard. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, it, you know, and you've got, you know you've got some experts there. Who need, and sometimes we can dress it up really well, like Infinite Monkey Cage, and it, that feels like so you've got some people who know, what, know their shit, but they come across really well, and that's a bit conversational. I think podcasts generally do that really well. You feel like there's a normal person here who's trying to get to the bottom of something, or take, you know, and you're willing to go on that journey. And we haven't yet said, and I think it's incredibly important, and, and Serial really brings this out, that narrative, narrative is crucial to this. And and that's why I mentioned radio drama before, that what, what I think podcasting is doing now is finding a way to meld narrative and information and, you know, kind of um, the sense that people are, you were, we've got all this information to sort out. People are curious about the world. They want to learn. Um, they and, and they want to be, you know, challenged, I think, much, much more than people often think. Um, but of course, you also want that narrative aspect. People like story; they like closure. And I think the the, the clever thing of serial was to to find the way that would um, follow the the pleasure of the box set um, streaming television uh, with the the um, episodic nature of wanting to know what would happen next. Um, the serial drama suspense aspect, um, and as you know, Mark mentioned. Um, Kermode and Mayo, I think that, I mean, I, I listen to them occasionally. My husband is a huge fan. He listens to them all the time, um, very possibly during moments when I would prefer that he <laughs> weren't. I don't know. Oh, no. um, but, uh, but he, there are four of us in this marriage. And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Two of them are Kermode and Mayo. Um, but, uh, and, and I absolutely think that you're right, that they're, it's, they're obviously, it's not about story as such, but it's about the, the sense that you know what their relationship is. And that is a kind of substitute for story. That you're you eavesdropping. You're eavesdropping on a relationship, and that is a kind of implied narrative. There is a kind of continuity and a story there, mm. even though they're ostensibly reviewing films. There's something else happening at the same time. And, and also, just what you were saying about um, not talking down to people. Uh, Answer Me This, for instance, has a big audience of young people. If we'd set out to make a show that appealed to 14-year-olds, we would have massively failed, <laughs> like so many shows do. But uh, Listen, we... young people, as we tell you something you must know. <laughs> let, let me use some hip jargon, Godwin. 
Um, and uh, but it's just the fact that we we're not talking down to them, and they're like, this is something for adults, and they might not understand everything that's in it. Um, I think actually children are quite good content filters. That's, that's how they learn. <laughs> yeah, but um, but it just means that that it does, and it also appeals to people who are ten times older than those than the 10-year-olds. Well, I don't know if we have any 100-year-olds, but there are people in their That's 70s and 80s listening yeah. and there are people all the way in between. And I think it's because we, we can't we can't target any of those because if we did, we would fail. Mm. But it pleases me that they have self-selected. But it's an interesting combination, presumably, of the the narrative and the content with the technology which fits into their lives, as Sarah was saying. Yeah, it you know. exploded when um, iPhones and then iPads uh, became popular so you didn't have to connect an iPod to a piece of software anymore which was just too many Mm. steps and too complicated but when you've got uh, an iPhone or something you can just click a button and you get a podcast and it meant that the audience suddenly got a lot older as well like my mum is 67 and now she's got a tablet she is listening to podcasts but that's what it took Mark on Serial's front because Sarah mentioned Serial and that seems to be the thing that everyone points to Uh two questions one (laughs) is it overplayed the effect that had had on kind of this resurgent and B, uh, to what extent, uh, did, you know, why did you decide to rebroadcast it? I believe on four extra. I mean, how big was it? And why was it particularly the thing that caught so many people's imagination? So, um, the first one, I think podcasts were surging ahead anyway. And I think Cyril has just, uh, been, it's a, it's a great, it's a great bit of listening. Um, but it's not the only great bit of listening. Um, you can see the market growing. I mean, mainly I mainly listen to UK and US podcasts, and that's what I get presented in the UK. It's that kind of English language, and certainly in North America, you can see a there's a need for it. There's a kind of thirst and a hunger for it. Um, it's because we drive a lot. I was going to say the, connect, <laughs> the connected yeah, I mean, car. I, I'm not, yeah, more than fifty yeah. percent of your listening yeah. is in car, isn't yeah. it? So yeah. that makes a huge I, difference. I'm not being facetious. We drive a lot. It's a no, big absolutely. country, and, and <laughs> there's no public transportation. Everybody's in their cars, and, uh, and so we rebroadcast because we rebroadcast bits of radio that we like the look of and um, we've done it quite a few times we've done it with like ted hour and other other shows we've done it with and um that's a normal thing for us to do occasionally great well i'm going to before we wrap it up put each of you on the spot and ask you for one or two of your favorite podcasts to recommend presumably not your own in the case <laughs> of know. helen but um <laughs> let me start with you mark um a podcast to recommend that our listeners might not have heard of Obviously, I would. I, I'm not going to say answer me this because I've been listening to that for so many years, and Helen's here. All the bugling digs. No, no, you know, it's a, it's a, a brother who makes that. Um, but I would go and check out Catholic stuff. You should know. Uh, I'm interested in kind of ethics and stuff like that, and that is just uh, a nice little stuff that deals with subjects like guilt. And certainly taught me a few things. I did. I'm not Catholic, and I'm nowhere near Catholic, but I found that quite interesting and kind of some of the ethics around that. Sarah. Well, I have, I have incredibly uh, mainstream tastes. I, mean, I can't. I don't know if I know anything that other everybody else doesn't know. Um, but I think the 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 one thing I would say is that I do like to. Although I can't remember even you know specifically where they are, but that people are increasingly um, putting up historical programs, which I do actually think are interesting. So getting things like you know Garrison Keillor's old radio monologues, which actually work really well as podcasts. And I want to make sure that as with all of the 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 new podcasting that everybody's listening to, which is great, there are some old great things that can be rediscovered so i always like to make a plug for historical and a good time with keeler because he's retiring um helen uh well uh well this week i've particularly enjoyed um some episodes of the longest shortest time which is ostensibly about parenting but it's really just people talking about their lives i'm not a parent and uh, i was like wow this is fascinating and also being a parent sounds really hard um and also uh, i don't i've got hundreds of podcasts in my subscriptions but 
the ones I listen to every week are Bullseye, which is like a culture magazine show, and 99% Invisible, which is uh, little stories about design. Brilliant. Well, on that note, thank you so much to my guests, Sarah Churchwell, Helen Zaltzman, and Mark Friend. Thank you to you for listening. Uh, This arts podcast was produced by Griselda Murray-Brown and Lily Lebrun. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.